Welcome to Slayer Fest 98. I am your host, Ryan Hulam. I'm Dana Pickley. I'm Nick G. And I'm Michael Verratti from Midnight Mass, filling in for Ian Carlos Crawford. And we are here today to discuss Angel Season 2's Blood Money. Hello, everybody. Hello, hello. Does everyone have their bucket of blood ready? Yeah, and our bucket of money. It's a party. (laughs) It is a party, actually, in this episode, but we'll get there. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Uh, I I think this episode is wild, and I can't wait to dive in. But how's everyone today? Pretty good. Pretty good. I liked this episode a lot. Um, I, you know, it's not a perfect episode, but we have a lot of fun, and there's a lot of stuff in there, and it's like twist after twist after twist. So I had a good time watching it earlier. Yeah, I mean, I think that this episode uh, has a lot going on with the main plot and then sort of a what is happening with Cordy West and gun plot. I mean, I know it sets up things later, but they're sort of involved in the episode in a tertiary way and a flatulent demon way, which is very fascinating. Um, I kind of feel like they... They just had to be there contractually. I don't know what anybody else's take is on that, but I have it. I have a take, but it's not a strong dig. <laughs> <laughs> Should we just jump in? Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, we do start there, right? Yeah, I think we begin the episode where uh, Wesley and Gunn are playing what I assume to be a game of Risk at Cordelia's apartment. And she's uh, had it officially. And she does not want them to be hanging out. Then she has a vision about a fire breathing, which turns out to be a fire farting monster. Um, I'm sure that in the uh, early thousands that that landed in a different way. <laughs> they were like, we love Shrek. Right. And, and Cordy's, Cordy's got her fuck ass Bob in this yes, episode. That is a fuck ass yeah. Bob. Oh, wow. I don't know why I keep getting the episodes where Cordy has like some obscenely late 90s, early aughts hairstyle that just it blows my mind. <laughs> I mean, we love this Bob. It's not quite yet the John and Kate plus eight, which uh, comes later <laughs> in the series, but this is a strong showing for the uh, blunt cut right. Bobs. And, and a strong, strong uh, highlight, blonde highlight Ooh, in yeah. it, which I um, am embarrassed to say I had pretty much that same haircut with those same highlights. <laughs> I lived in LA uh, for half a year around the time, well, maybe like five years after this. It was the, you know, it it was how things were back then. Yeah, well, I mean, this is what two thousand one. I certainly went through my spiky hair, frosted tips era, and I think that we all <laughs> just need to own. That. I currently have blonde hair, and I do yeah. not normally have blonde hair, so I should probably <laughs> shut up. <laughs> this is a safe space. This, yeah, a safe space. This is a space where. Um, Games of risk and farting demons and chunky highlights are allowed. So mm. <laughs> Kelly Clarkson would love it. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so what happens is Cordelia, she has visions about this monster and uh, they decide because Angel and the gang are on the outs currently that they're going to go and handle this. They can do it without Angel and Wes and Gunn go off onto the adventure. And then we catch up with Angel, who is bumping into Anne who, uh, you know, Buffy viewers may remember from multiple episodes and multiple names. This lady has had more names over the course of the mythology of the Slayerverse. And she keeps popping up. I don't want to dead name her, but Chanterelle was a great name. <laughs> Anne is also a great name. Nobody's knocking it, but I will always hold space for Chanterelle. <laughs> I mean, unless there's a fancy, a fancy mushroom called Anne, I just don't think you're going to top Chanterelle. <laughs> <laughs> but I love that she's walking down the street with this enormous box and fully in front of her face as if that is 
a thing that a normal person would do because when Angel puts the books back or like the belongings back, she carries it like a normal person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just impressed about the amount of like daytime hour, like day job work that gets done after dark in this part of LA. Uh, <laughs> Cause she's just carrying on. Like it's the middle of her work day, which I guess for her it is yeah. with all these. It's a 24 seven hour, a 24 seven job for, for Anne. It's true. Well, I'm also wondering what time of year is this supposed to be set? Because I think as anybody who lives in LA knows, there's a good chunk of the year where the sun doesn't even go down till almost like 8.30 or 9. But I think this episode aired in- have picked a worse place to be like, I'm setting up shop. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I I think this episode aired in January, but that doesn't mean it was set in January. And again, from the six months that I lived in LA, I can tell you that you can't tell what season it is by what they're wearing because girls will forever be wearing miniskirts and Uggs. (laughs) <laughs> yeah i'm Still. from long island same story <laughs> oh, I know. yeah it, it's interesting though so here we go we have Anne and angel they run into each other angel helps her pick up her extraordinary amount of junk uh and then it seems like a random run in but it's not because when angel goes home he has dozens of pictures of her as if he's in a late night cinemax movie and he has stolen her driver's license which reveals her new name to be Anne Steele, which as a, a point of literary reference is also the name of a character in sense and sensibility which i really appreciate and yeah so that's that's where we're at what do we think about angel's stalking here well, we see we see the reason he's doing it is because she has a connection to Lindsay and Wolfram and Hart. Right. Yeah, I think I'm glad that they used Anne again, not just because I really like this actress. I really like the character a lot. I mean, like, well, side note, I really like Anne because I think Anne represents a lot of us in the audience. And I think like, you know, not to get too deep too fast, but a lot of us like neurodivergent people who are really inspired by Buffy and have like strong ethical beliefs but for whom like we don't have superpowers, we all have limitations. And to watch somebody like with nothing be inspired like that by someone like that who does have power and is doing the right thing. Like I'm not saying that's how it works in the real world, but like I have felt inspired by Buffy in that way. And I think it makes for a really great shortcut character for us to know that he's not stalking Anne because she did anything wrong. Like she's not the target of his ire and her working with Wolfram and Hart is her being misguided. Like we immediately know that in other episodes with a different character who hadn't been established as having this like breakthrough, like eureka moment about the world and how it works and what we should be doing in it. Like, we might spend the whole time thinking, what if she crisscrosses? Like her moral ambiguity is not played like that. And I think it's really smart to have used her. Whoever in the writer's room pitched bring back Anne, I mean, claps. Did you also pr- pitch bringing back Anya? Because that was a great choice. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's good. And I think that's a really great point because Anne's trajectory over the course of uh, Buffy and now Angel is really interesting because obviously when we meet her, she is part of a vampire worship cult in Buffy. And um, it's alluded to in this episode when she talks about how she had previously met a vampire and it didn't go well. And it's that thing where I think we as audience members love the fantasy of it while divorcing ourselves from the reality of what that situation would be. And I think she represents that in a lot of ways. Like it's cool to be invested in vampires until you meet one, right? And her life perspective changed. And then again, when she meets Buffy and takes the name Anne, I, I feel for this character because I think that when we've met her twice before, she was looking for her place in the world and each time was sort of let down but also empowered by the end of the story so to see her now an angel being someone who takes care of teens and is like 
adamantly taking care of teens because she was that teen is really something special. And it kind of like you feel even worse for her to know that now with these like altruistic reasons, she has allied with the worst possible people without knowing it. And that's just like, but I mean, we wouldn't have an episode if she didn't. But right. But Taylor's oldest time, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it I think it also is a great mirror. Like I do think that the Cordelia Wesley Gunn storyline is there for a good reason. I think they should have found ways to tie it in better than what we get, which is like a YouTube video. <laughs> but okay, cool, whatever. Um they're making TikToks. Um I think what's good for it though is that it it, it the and thing and the the new agency thing underscore that there are other kinds of heroism and being a good person and, and fighting the good fight that are not punching and running around and all the stuff that we usually get. And it's even not even like sneaky work. It's not even subterfuge. It's not even like glad handing. It's literally like doing the unglamorous work and also like having social relationships with people, having things that ground you, having like you know, to to fight antisocial behavior, you have to be a little social. And I think the angel of it all, like we'll get to it and all, but him working, realizing no matter what, he was going to need an ally and whether or not he's like in a place with other people t- for them to be that person is interesting. But like, I think like, I don't know. I think like Anne really was like a stroke of genius and is the heart of this. And, you know, no spoilers for everybody. I cannot believe Anne doesn't come back way. I mean, she does, but way more than she did because like for this and the next season, those are like really central themes. And I think she does a good job of like, I don't know, presenting it in a poignant way without this episode, the major structure of how our gang's dynamics are working in this episode, in this season wouldn't like, it wouldn't be so underlined for me. I, I don't think it would have been very clear that like they're working together. Cause like, I mean, I guess it's a little over, but, like, I wouldn't have had it as highlighted that, like, their side of things is being, is trying to teach Angel that he needs, like, allies and a group and, like, the opposite of the Darla, Spike, Drusilla, fuckpile or whatever is going on (laughs) over there, you know? I don't know. I just love it. And I wanted to get up, up top that, like, that's my favorite part of this whole thing, like, it's so good. Uh, you know, though, I think it is interesting, and we can talk about it more towards the end of the episode. Uh, what I like about what you're saying, Ryan, is also how her trajectory and growth in this episode in some ways matches the new show that she's in and is more reflective of Angel versus where she was when we met her and Buffy. And uh, we can talk about that at the end of the That's episode. True. But it is really interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so after we discover that Angel uh, has been keeping up with Anne for good reasons, because she has been associating with Lindsay and Wolfram and Hart, we go back to our B-plot where Wesley and Gunn are creeping around the sores, Ninja Turtle style, and uh, find themselves in battle with an off-camera firefighting creature. I think that this is is some good comedy, I guess, if not dated comedy. Uh, I don't know how much more it adds to the episode other than establishing kind of their later decision. Unless, you know, as you said, Ryan, you you like this part of the the plot. Um, This part with the farting demon? I'm good on that. (laughs) (laughs) I think the show does this thing where it's, it's... it can be sometimes very self-conscious or like very, very focused on how serious and dark it is. This is a serious crime show, you guys. And they're like, well, I guess we got to keep it light. Fart jokes? Great. Fart jokes. Right. Yeah, they didn't have the built-in solutions that are Fred and Lauren. I mean, to a point, mm. it gets sad later. But like, I, I they didn't have some built-in 
solutions and Cordelia can't do all the work. And I think this is them playing around with tone a little bit, which is cool, but like, Let's whole ass something instead of half assing four different villains for this episode. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, It is interesting, though, because I I think that the point about uh, them balancing tone, sometimes successfully and sometimes not, is something that's just really true across the whole of the Slayerverse. And I think it makes sense because not every villain is going to be the big apocalyptic apocalyptic baddies. Sometimes it's going to be a double meat palace. Sometimes it's going to be a puppet and it's fun, you know, but I think that sometimes, I don't know, I guess maybe my issue, it's not an issue. I'm not like mad. I'm not like, you know, writing a stern letter retroactively about why I don't think this portion of it works. It's just that I think the themes with the story with Anne, as well as this kind of investigation of the dark places you go to do the right thing, this feels slightly out of place unless I am just, you know, overthinking it. I don't know. If you if you don't tie the lightness or like the fun or whatever your camp is, like the musical of it all tied in very deeply with the themes of the episode and spread it throughout, it's just going to feel like a family guy cutaway thing. <laughs> and like, I don't know. That's uh, it's not so bad that it's distracting. I was just like, it's kind of. I'm like, what am I supposed to focus on at the beginning of this episode? Yeah, but it is what it is. I mean, I think Merle's funnier than than any of that. <laughs> well, <Poor> Merle. <laughs> Merle is kind of a sad sack, right? Uh, and to that uh, point, our next scene: uh, Angel goes to Merle's apartment, I guess, underdwelling. And uh, he wants information about Anne, and that's this is where he further gets info about her connection to Wolfram and Hart. And I think that it's interesting because this is this is Batman Angel. You know, he's doing the right thing, but he's not very nice about it. I don't like how he treats Merle. I'm just gonna say it. Yeah. Well, they kind of do that to all these kind of uh, middle middle road demons, right? Like these guys don't—they're just trying to get by. Merle's just trying to get by. He just wants to have enough money to afford a fresh beanbag chair. And everyone's got to be so mean to him. Yeah. On the point of Angel not being very nice, there were a couple moments where I had to double check where I was in the Angel timeline to be like, wait, does he still have a soul? Because he's really like, he's going for it right now. Yeah. I thought the same thing when he's in the car with Lila. Yes. Oh my God. I was like, is this Angelus? Like, yeah, what's going on? He's scary. Like, it's, I mean, you know, he's rude to Merle, but he get it gets really sinister. So, yeah. I mean, this is, this is an angel maybe with a soul, but without friends. Yeah. Yeah. Which then it kind of begs the question, what's the difference at a certain point? Because oh. he is without it's that thing at the end of becoming i guess where you know the difference between angel and buffy are the people around her and now we see what angel is without the people around him and it's not very nice i mean he may be a hero but not a very good one i would say because even the way he achieves his means at the end of this episode although they achieve the desired good guy effect it's kind of shitty to be honest yeah, I think we've seen Angel with no friends and a soul and like he was eating rats and then someone decided to befriend him and put him on the right path. And like his best times have been when he's like with a buff- the Buffy gang and like he's in on the mission or whatever or like Cordelia and him are cracking a case. And his worst times are he's in a mansion alone being like whatever. And like I, if if you regularly return to a place of whatever when you're alone, like maybe that's a pretty good message to you that like, 
I don't know. This whole episode to me is about like the mission and like the mission is not a, a, a fight for an imaginary thing that you'll never get. Cause you need to just keep fighting to like fill a hole in you. Like a mission is like something you live every day. And like, I, I don't think he understood that half of it. Or Angel also seems like a character who like, he's like, I get it. I get why I need to help people. And it's like, no, you actually have to keep learning and growing. You didn't reach the end of learning and growing, you know? And I think Cordelia and everybody kind of get that from a place that he doesn't just because he's so old. <laughs> he's been alone for so long. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting, though, because I think that this show, and and we see it in Shades of Giles, when we see it in some of the other characters in the Buffyverse, that the mission is important, but I think a, a continuing theme over both of the shows is that blind devotion to the mission is just as deadly as evil sometimes. I think there's yeah. this this kind of overcommitment to uh, ideology that because we've seen like all the worst moments of Giles is when he neglects Buffy's humanness. You know, when uh, Angel is in this place in this episode, he's neglecting his friends. He's being kind of uncool to the people who are helping him. I don't think he's really great to Anne, even though he's supposed to be her ally. It's I don't know. It's a, it's a more macro conversation, but the show kind of seems to say, you know, being chosen or being on a mission is good, but maybe you need to have perspective about it. I mean, nothing is more cold than giving away your best friend's clothing to a stranger when he shows up <laughs> and then hands over a bag yeah. of Cordy's clothing. He's like, friendship done. I'm not seeing her again. Also, Cordy, who would take that so personally? <laughs> <laughs> right? The ultimate slap of the face. I also think like, okay, so we have this, we learn that Wolfram Hart wants to do this fundraiser for the shelter called the Highway Robbery Ball. And I think, like, oh, so what a weird scene. Dumb. <laughs> so dumb. Hacky. But it does underscore the, like, if you have to take, or if you, first off, if you have to dance for the money, it's 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 insulting and, like, it's degrading and it's not as good of a deed as if someone just gives you money. But if you have to, like, play act taking it, too, like, it's just, it's layers and layers of just, like, people doing the right thing for the wrong reasons is just kind of not enough. I mean, it's better than nothing, but, like, um, but what a strange theme. Have any of you ever heard of something like this before? This feels very much like a corporate function. Yes. It absolutely does. <laughs> yeah. No, like a retreat. Right. No, it's fascinating because while watching the episode, I was just like, what a dumb theme for a charity event. But then the more I thought about it, I was like, you know what, though, if I got online and read in the news that Elon Musk did this exact same thing at X or Twitter or whatever we're calling it today's headquarters, I'd be like, oh yeah, that makes sense because dumb. So like if this was reported on in the real world, I would hate it just as much, but I believe that this kind of thing happens. Oh yeah. I mean, I've seen, I've seen some pretty poorly executed tasteless uh, things. It's just the specificity with which they imagined this highway robbery. I mean, and, and honestly the poor actors, in LA who got hired to dress as like cowboys or whatever. All I could think was like, I hope Wolfram and Hart is paying them through the nose too. I, I hope so. I wonder if Wolfram and Hart, um, where's Wolfram and Hart on the SAG-AFTRA WGA strike? <laughs> I need to know what, what the line I is think there. You, I think you know. I think you know. <laughs> they Good. are representing AMPTP. That's, yeah, they, they're they're the they're the the legal firm for the private equity that owns all the studios. Oh, 
And it was in this episode of Slayer Fest that we discovered that David Zaslav was a senior partner. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> After what he did to Legendary, yes. <laughs> okay, so we uh, we now know that Angel goes. Oh, Angel goes and talks to Merle. This is where we're at right now, and he goes to the shelter to talk to Anne. Uh, and uh, as as you pointed out, he takes Cordy's clothes. Talk about the. Uh, the highway robbery ball. And then uh, we know after that, that a new demon in town, as Ryan mentioned, one of the four villains of this week's episode, a new demon named Boone pops up and uh, also kind of shakes Merle down for information on Angel. Uh, I like Boone as sort of a simplistic uh, kind of spaghetti Western kind of bad guy because he just... He just wants fisticuffs. That's his. That's his initial mo. I don't. I don't dislike this baddie. I had trouble taking him seriously though. With with the the like kind of Harlequin look to him. Like I feel like I did that to a Barbie doll or like a Ken doll with like a blue marker. It's just like there's something about his look that I struggle to take seriously. <laughs> Fair. Also, I don't know if this is the right way to say this, but the way that he talked about Angel and his relationship with Angel. It felt a little horny. <laughs> there's there's a moment where he's like, um, we fought for three hours. And he like looks it, like into the distance. And then he ends by saying how he needs to fight him properly again because he just needs to know who's better. Uh, which is a moment that we come back to at the end of the episode. There was something in the styling of Boone that was a... Uh... <laughs> well, if we want to go with the Western spaghetti Western of it all, cowboys are pretty fucking gay. <laughs> well, no, I think there's something to this, though, because obviously we know that um, it is alluded to somewhere in the lore that Angel and Spike hooked up at some point. And, oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. And, oh, yeah. And I think that... Uh, even the the tension between these two, yeah, it's presented as combat, but as as per the reveal later in the episode, like they like this. They like the tension between each other. They like the kind of like mm, energy, if, you know, for <laughs> lack of a better term. So, and we don't really get to see their final fight. We just see like some like white knuckling fists, and then we cut. So cut away who knows? to them smoking a cigarette in bed, but really it's just a, you know, a post-fight cigarette. Exactly. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, I like that. I like this read. I'm all about it. I think that we need more uh, hookups of Angel's past to come out of the woodworks. Especially queer ones. Exactly. Triple down on that. <laughs> Uh, so after Boone's visit to Merle, uh, we get to the sequence that was alluded to earlier where Angel surprises Lila in her car uh, and and is extremely menacing. I really like this scene, even though it definitely paints our protagonist as uh, less than, than um, heroic. But it made me really think, I don't know, I, I was reflecting on 90s erotic thrillers and that kind of thing where like the the intense stalker is hiding in the back seat and there's just like that, or it even has that little element of drag me to hell. I don't know if that's, uh, you know, where the, the baddies in the back seat and it just, it makes me happy. I love those oh vibes. God. I love the phrase baddies in the back seat. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of every woman's worst nightmare mm, to mm-hmm. like get into your car. I mean- I don't know about you, Nick, but like I always check my back seat when I get into my car because that's what we're taught to do because that's something that we grow to fear is that there's going to be somebody dangerous 
that gets in the back of our car and we'll be helpless. Yeah. Angel really leans into it too. He, he says something like, I don't know. He just, he, he makes a lot of threats. And like I said, this was the moment where I was like, are we sure he still has a soul? Cause, uh, yeah, this was the point at which I genuinely was like, wait, am I, did I, I might've watched this out of order or something, you know what I mean? And then I was like, wait, no, that doesn't even make any sense. What? what?" But I also think it's, you know, it is 90s sexual thriller. Absolutely. Lila is perfect for that. Like, oh my God, let's remake basic instinct. And, um, uh, of course we won't recast any of the roles, but let's find a role for Lila in it. Um, I I I really liked it, but I I, I liked it because I like that genre. But I, I also think it's important to balance in the show, not in this episode. So I really understand why it sticks out here. But in the show, on the queerness of it all, he does do the erotic thriller stuff with Lindsay even more than with Lila. And I don't <laughs> know what that means about the gender dynamics of the time. Maybe they were just more conscious of how it was coming off with Lila, but or maybe they they liked it, you know, with Lindsay. I don't I don't really know. I don't know where it's coming from. But it, he was treating Lila a little more than like he usually treats Lindsay. With Lila, he's a little bit like, you know, like I met a union uh, lawyer for for client side union organizing, so they like they're, you know, union busters. And I've organized two unions at this point. And we had dinner on accident with my aunts without realizing that that kind of dynamic was going to happen. And it was very like, shake hands over the table, well met. You represent evil, I represent good. But we both are going to do this in an office and enjoy your dinner kind of energy. That's what he normally has with Lila. With Lindsay, it's like he wants to murder fuck Lindsay. <laughs> and that was what the vibe was here. And I, I wonder if it's the Anne of it all that he started really taking this like personally. You know, yeah, I feel like a few up ep- or uh, many episodes at this point. Um, but we were talking about earlier in the season where I think Darla calls it that like Lindsay has this weird fucked up thing with Angel, and now we kind of see the other the other side of like Angel's you know take no prisoners aspect. But when he's when when Angel is talking to Lila, the thing that really got me um, when you know she's trying to be like play it cool and be dismissive, and she's like Angel, please, and he goes no no no, the begging comes later. And I was yeah. like, Angel, this is too much. <laughs> well, there's so much to unpack from this one scene as well as what you just said. I think it's interesting because I think even though much like what has been discussed, I love 90s erotic thrillers, so I get what's going on here. But one thing that really puts me off about Angel's behavior here, and I know it's the means to the end, et cetera, we're supposed to accept that because what's going on. But uh, I, I believe it was you, Dana, that pointed out, you know, the checking in the backseat, he is exploiting that fear. And he really leans into the power dynamics in a really icky way that, of course, you know, we know why he's doing it, but that doesn't make me feel good about it. Like, I don't love that he does it. And it's just sort of a reminder that, yes, he has a soul, but also remember that even though he had a soul, he has still killed and done terrible things for centuries and he can tap back into that whenever he needs to Mm -hmm. and it's interesting fiction dynamics but who boy this is our hero just a reminder you know like woof yeah i don't know but the one thing also because we keep unpacking the queer the queer connections of angel like we talked about boone and the sexual i don't think we talk enough about the sexual uh, chemistry between him and Lindsay over the course of this series i think that they've got it and I think that's that classic nemesis thing. There's always a little bit of hate fuckery with nemeses. I don't know. Maybe well, it's having me. fun. He's having fun with Lindsay. And I, and I think it's those actors who are really close friends in real life. And that's part of it. But like, 
he only has that with a few men over this series where it's like him and Spike have a little of that where it's like, I think you guys like fighting. Like, I think you guys, I think you want a who's afraid of Virginia Woolf all day, every day. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, the hatred is a lot closer to love than you than indifference, you know? Mm. I think there's also, and it, Lindsay also mentions it a few times in this episode, which at this point, I guess we're about half a year beyond uh, the season one finale. But Lindsay's like, he took my hand. He stole my hand. Um, which, if this were my therapy hour, I'm pretty sure we could make a strong Freudian connection between, like, Angel's uh, castration of Lindsay's power. But there is a weird, there's a power dynamic that goes back and forth between the two of them. A little bit of cat and mouse that probably plays into that, like, 90s thriller vibe. Yeah. But, yeah. There's a lot going on under the surface with these folks. Sure is. Well, after Angel's visit to Lila in her car, which uh, led to all of this ribald discussion, uh, Boone then makes an unannounced visit to the Wolferman Hart office and talks to Lila and Lindsay uh, about his own plans and machinations for Angel, which gets Lindsay all fired up because, you know, he likes to get down and dirty with angel business despite what the senior partners want i always do love a scene of of villain unity it makes me think of the cartoons of yesteryear when like he-man's villains and she-ra's villains would meet up and you're like oh it's about to happen i don't know if that's like equivalent here but you know i feel like Lindsay's a bit of a gossip queen (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) Lindsay's like deep in the company slack deep he's like looking at dynamics and public channels and talking about them over dm it's it's a mess it's a mess Lindsay needs to join a kickball league really badly (laughs) (laughs) i just wonder if either of them are actually good lawyers you know i just have (laughs) to know (laughs) no way maybe they were but they're not doing the paperwork and the day-to-day whatever like they, they i i bet you their jobs at this point like the good wife is just gallivanting around and being veronica mars for evil or whatever you know what i want like remember when ally mcbeal and the practice were on the air at the same time and sometimes the cases would cross over and you would just see lawyers from the other show and the other show like trying cases i yeah. just need Lindsay and lila to pop up in like one david e kelly show just doing like a, <laughs> a, a basic case so we can have further context of wolfram and Hart's sort of like place in the greater los angeles yeah. legal landscape because it's hard for me to believe this multi-billion dollar industry with all these lawyers running around town that has prestige and we've never really seen them at work like i don't know not mm. <laughs> Well, again, I keep going back. I I had this moment when I'm watching. So when Boone comes in, I guess it's just after Lila and Lindsay have been talking to one of, I guess, their immediate boss about Angel threatening her. And then, uh, so this is a scene that's happening during the daytime. And then later in the episode, they're fully walking around at what looks like midnight in a full like court, like food court where coffee is being sold. But again, long after dark. And I'm like, what are their, their hours? Because are they on like... Are they doing evil nine to five or do they have like a shifted schedule where they can do evil like maybe from noon to midnight? But yeah, I don't know about Wolfram and Hart. Uh, or I guess they're maybe they get by on being special projects. They said I feel like hours. they would they would be the lawyers for like Deborah Vance from Hacks. <laughs> <laughs> like that is the kind they would be like entertainment lawyers for m- morally dubious actors. Yeah. Yeah, I love I love the phrase "doing evil nine to five. That 
that I just want as an ad campaign or a, a separate spinoff series. It's like Wolfram and Hart doing evil nine to five. And it's just the, the misadventures of paralegals in the world of darkness. Um, With like an evil Dolly Parton. Exactly. Oh my God. That's it. Dolly Parton is revealed <laughs> to be the new CEO of Wolfram and Hart Nashville. Are we breaking a spinoff series right Wait, now? I, I mean, believe you I- mean evil CEO. <laughs> I mean, listen, guys, Work. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to, she did executive produce the show. <laughs> so if she wants that role, I mean, it's hers, right? Well, for a hundred reasons. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> oh, man. All right. So yes, Wolfram and Hart, uh, Lila and Lindsay not doing very good by their bosses, but plotting evil with Boone. Boone talks to them about his past with Angel and that he has a fight that he wants to finish with them. Uh, Lindsay urges this this on to potentially even kill Angel, even though Lila's kind of clutching her pearls about it. Uh, Meanwhile, Wesley, Gunn, and Cordelia in our B-plot are having a a mitzvah about the slaying of their demon, and uh, they decide that they should maybe open a new agency. You kill one farting demon, and suddenly you think that you can run your own agency. (laughs) Eye on those methane fumes. (laughs) The best part of your 20s is when you do a little coke with your friends and start a business. (laughs) (laughs) You know what, though? Not to leap three years ahead on the timeline here, but like maybe if these three had started their own business and stayed away, their fates would have ended a little differently because just this trio alone do not have a good time coming ahead. Yeah, maybe if you had a business, you would know what it was like to run a business, but you don't. Um, I think this is a good idea for them, though, because you have to move forward and you have to move forward with the people who want to be there and who treat you correctly. And, it, you know, you could dwell on the past or what could have been or what people should be doing for the rest of your life. But that's not the point of being alive. That's the point of being a vampire. So, like, you have a soul. Pick your shit up. And, and am I saying this to Angel? No. But if he hears it, good. The shoe fits. They have they have like a life to live. And I like the idea that they're going to move on. And even if this business fails, they will all be at the next thing. Um, and I think that's an important part of your 20s. And maybe something that Angel's, again, missing because he's so old and been so alone and disconnected. You know, he's so out of practice for optimism or like move forward momentum in some ways. Fair. So here's the question. What's the best name for the agency? They throw out three. <laughs> They're all Gut. bad. They are Gut. all bad. That's true. <laughs> yes. I think the I Chase go, Agency. I was going to say, I have to go with Chase Agency. It's a PI firm. They're chasing the baddies. Yeah. Right on the nose, for sure. <laughs> and also, to be clear, Gun's suggestion was gun. <laughs> so that's not a name. It's a noun, proper noun. It's That's also a trigger. <laughs> yeah. Not, not, no pun intended. I also think, like, if they're going to make somebody the face of the agency and you're not going to use hunky hero guy, maybe it should be the actress who people immediately love upon meeting, you know? <laughs> well, also, in fairness, I mean, even though this wouldn't be what they would advertise to the world, she's going to be the one that's going to find the cases because of her psychic visions anyway. Yep. So it technically is her agency. And really, even when Angel's working with them for the time that she's there, it is anyway, too. And frankly, if we want to follow who ultimately has a bigger impact on the universe, I don't know what Cordelia gets up to at some point. No spoilers. But I think they're they're equal partners in some respects. And I don't know. I think starting the, her own company 
if that's what we want to call it with her two employees. I know that they're all in it together, whatever. If she is able to do that, like, I, I think that it's a great way to validate yourself. Like I own a small media company and I went from freelancing to being a small media company by filling out some paperwork. And it does make you feel like an adult. Like it does make you feel like you're kind of in charge of your shit. Um, so like good for them. And I also think that, you know, we'll get there, but if Angel ever wants to hang out with them again, it's on our turf now, you know, it's not all you big boy. Yeah. I think uh, them starting an agency as three humans fighting supernatural crime, it's going to have way better benefits than whatever Angel Investigations was giving them because (laughs) Angel doesn't need sick days. Although he was bruised several times in this episode. And I was like, wait, again, I'm reconsidering everything I knew about this universe. They bleed and bruise? Interesting. Yeah. I mean, also, I guess with Angel, you're going to have limited hours, right? Like you can only work for... The overnights. I mean, it's the same thing yeah. with the Wolfram, Wolfram and Hart, Noon to Noon. I think, you know what? Working with Angel has more drawbacks than benefits because you know that those people have to do all the footwork while he's sleeping. And then we, when he wakes up, he gets to be Mr. Like, I'm going to go charging in now. Ugh. And I know this is I know this is discriminatory, perhaps. Uh, and frankly, I never get to do that. I don't want my egg salad next to your blood in the fridge, sir. You know what I mean? I need some accessibility for me, too. I don't want to be drinking pig's blood on accident when I reach for coffee. No, this whole thing, they really should be being compensated really well. And frankly, they're probably going to end up working overtime because Angel's like, I can't do errands during the day. Like, I really need you to do them. Like, oh, fuck off, vampire with your bullshit. (laughs) Upsetting. I mean, she already is, uh, Cordelia is already going through the LA experience of moving here, trying to make it in an industry and now like shifting to a new age job. So it's kind of like, just take, t- be, be the boss, Cordy. This is a pro yeah. Cordelia podcast. I'm just, you know. Oh yeah. Always has been, always will be. <laughs> exactly. All right. So after uh, the visit with, uh, th- well, not after the visit with Boone, we talked about that. After Wesley Gunn and Cordelia decide to create their own agency and argue about the name, we cut back to Merle's place again because comedy is nothing if not a rule of threes. And this is the third time he has been infringed upon and beaten up, this time by Lila and one of her thugs who accost him for information. I feel so bad for Merle in this. I know we keep ringing uh, on this point, but every time we see him in this episode, he's getting punched in the face. How does he know so much? Well, he's an inform- he's an informant. Right? Isn't that like their job? Like <laughs> totally. I just think like you know he's got he's got a GPS location on Angel. He's got up to date case information. Like I don't know. I've had some I've had some some people come to me who uh, who yeah, I don't know what the word is like gossips, <laughs> and and he's just so reliable. And also he's got a he doesn't know that they know where he is. Well, you've got to start doing some research on your own life, buddy, and finding a new layer. Maybe he's on the same Slack as Lindsay. True. Maybe he could he be has- a hacker. He's a hacker demon. He does have that really cool Mac uh, computer hanging out in the back of his lair. So, whoa, yeah, maybe. And also, like in a very like kind of dated of the era thing, I love that uh, his furniture slash decor is just Magnavox TV boxes. (laughs) I mean, I think those just fell off a truck, and he's waiting to unload them. Now we understand what Merle's actual uh, income is. It's uh, it's nineties televisions. Yeah, he just does the stool, the stool pigeon shit for fun. <laughs> <laughs> when people say they've got a guy, that guy is Merle. Good. You know what? I would like my guy to be Merle, honestly. 
<laughs> or maybe not. He gives you up pretty fast. I, I recant yeah. that statement. Like, <laughs> yeah. But your TV guy could be Merle. He seems to really be knowing what he's doing with these hot units. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, after Lila and her goons shake down Merle, uh, we then go back to the teen shelter late at night uh, where Angel shows up and kind of gives some creeper vibes to Anne, which she calls out. And she thinks that uh, he's been stalking her. And he's like, yo, I am. And uh, she seems to take it really well uh, because I don't think I would if someone came in and, and gave me that information. Like she... She is just sort of like, you're stalking me. And he's like, yep. And she's like, oh. And then, of course, Lindsay shows up. But it's just like, mm, I mean. You know I what? Get- the shit the shit Anne probably sees every day. Fair. <laughs> you know, those teens got to come in with some Degrassi-ass shit going on. Well, she, she says as much at the toward the end of the episode where she uh, talks about, you know, girls sitting in pools of her own blood and all the terrible things she's seen. She's like, you know what? She's, she has that moment of like, I'm willing to make a deal with the devil because I've been living here. Yeah. R- right. And, and you're, and that's, that's sort of the, uh, the basis of her engagement with Wolfram and Hart. When Angel reveals uh, in this sequence, why he's been following her, she seems not as flustered because, you know, them doing something awful is not all that big of a deal to her, considering the fact that, she sees awful things with the teens every day. And uh, Angel points out that the money that they would give her is going to be barely anything. And she's like, well, it's better than nothing. And and I think that that's a really interesting perspective because I think often in these sort of hero-driven shows, when the villain's plot is presented, usually we're, we as the audience are supposed to agree, you know, that this is wrong. And it is wrong. But... Anne lives in a more morally gray world, uh, or not morally gray, that's not what I mean, but like in a world where people are not looking out for the people she's looking out for, and anything that she can do is going to be significant. And so she's less bothered than Angel is. And I think that's that's interesting. I love that the show explores that gray area, because so often we just only get these kind of like good and bad bottom line kind of, of statements, but that's not how the world works. Yeah. I mean, Angel takes paying clients, which means he has to be less concerned with money, ironically. And she does not. She helps anybody, which means she has to be obsessed with money. And as somebody who's worked in nonprofits and like a media nonprofit with celebrity like donors, so literally a lot of it was parties, it sucks because you're everyone knows what you're doing kind of sucks, but you're stuck doing it. And you're in this trap of like the more influence and power you give to these people over the quote unquote helping of people, the like worse the world is in some respects, but you still should help people. So what do you do? Like you're kind of screwed in this way that like Angel isn't by being like, I'm going to, you know, charge people as awful as that is too. Like, I mean, the deal with the devil sounds really attractive when you live in fucking hell. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it's even, it's really interesting too, in an episode where we see Angel act as darkly as he does act for them to have this conversation with someone who at the beginning of the episode, we presume she's just, you know, naive and innocent. And she's like, you know, she does the math for him. And she's like, yeah, that's a hundred thousand dollars. That's like, I'm fine by that. And she also points out like, you cut off Lindsay's hand. Like, how dare you judge me? And he's like, Oh, okay. Like it's, (laughs) there's an interesting uh, moment that happens when they're talking where it's like tables are turned and you thought angel was maybe, 
uh, you know, maybe the dark one, the big badass episode, but it's actually the little blonde girl running the shelter who's like, I don't care. Everything is a means to an end. And she reminds me a little of Buffy in the sense of like, I can be an optimist and I can be earnest and I can like, you know, try my hardest and it doesn't make me naive. Like I understand what's going on. I do think that's still the best option for everybody, including me. And like, that is a perspective we don't always get. I mean, that might be a perspective certain characters have on the show, but it's not necessarily highlighted that often at IMO. Right. And I would be remiss, uh, especially because it's so key to the very end of the episode that it during that conversation where she calls him out for his uh, sort of hypocrisy, Angel kind of takes this brief stance where he's like, but it's blood money, which is really rich, of course, for Angel to to point out, considering all of the things we've highlighted and mm-hmm. and a history of villainy um, or even just his history in this episode. If we know nothing about Angel, it's not like he's exactly running around uh, doing all the right things here. And then, of course, things are complicated uh, upon the arrival of Lindsay and Boone and a fight breaks out and chaos. Uh, this is when Anne really figures out that Angel is a vampire and uh, lots of lots of fisticuffs and show. <laughs> well, we've got to include some for the trailer, you know, the like next week on Angel trailer from last week. So I, I get it. <laughs> I think that's why Boone is there to begin with is to give Angel some like monsters to fight so that they could use it on the WB. That makes sense. Yes, so it's in this moment then that because of Boone's arrival and because of the reveal and the monsters of it all, uh, Anne is like, all right, what do you want me to do? Angel lays out his plot for the uh, cowboy benefit situation, and she uh, is is kind of down to help him with, with his, his plan. Uh, and this is when we find out that Nathan Reed of uh, Wolfram and Hart is none too pleased with the situation with... Uh, Lindsay and uh, Lila, and he is at the uh, at the ball. Everything is going uh, as 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 planned thus far. That Boone is hiding, ready to pounce, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, let's just talk about the ball for a few. I know we alluded to it earlier, but what what a situation! Yeah, tacky uh, <laughs> highway robbery. Come on, guys. Although I I do love how in such a I mean, it's not a short scene, but like in such a small amount of time, they fit in as many um, L.A. entertainment industry tropes as possible. <laughs> like the guy who's like, here, here's an envelope full of cash. Um, my daughter from my first marriage loves your show. And then the next <laughs> scene is some rich person being like, so can you tell me about the gay character playing? I don't get it. Uh, <laughs> I feel like that was like a personal uh, kind of in-joke, probably, that they got from... <laughs> And they were like, we got to add this. Yeah, they were they were they were on the receiving end of a lot of phone calls from Buffy people. And they were like, well, those, I don't think those people followed us to a second show. So let's make some jokes. <laughs> <laughs> but I you're I love how this episode does take um, the piss out of sort of L.A. cultural types because uh, I live here. You're right. I see it. Um, I also love when the actors enter the scene uh, that are supposed to be playing the cowboys that are air quotes robbing the, uh, the the guests and how cheesy it is. Like it's like rich people Chuck E. Cheese, and I think it's yeah. kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> what's the What's the name of the old uh, the guy from Wolfram and Hart that's dead? That um, the old the guy that used to run the show. Harlan. Yes, and having that like painful video playing. While this is all going on by Harlan. Yeah. Yeah. But you know that it's so 
accurate, right? The idea of these these benefits or like the political fundraisers where they have like the affluent like older white senator or like, you know, lawyer doing the video, like walking around, like, you know, tapping a fence, like, you know, here, oh, I didn't see you there. I'm just, you know, building up a better tomorrow. That <laughs> it's it's just like so on the nose. Like the satire here is pretty rich, I think. Yeah, I think the only thing is that like TV budgets will never be able to convey maybe HBO convey the level of money spent on these stupid parties <laughs> and it would it would even heighten and elevate some of the like great dialogue we get. Also, I wish we could cut out Boone entirely and just have added another 10 minutes of this party and our characters circulating among like, you know, just parodies of the worst people in LA. I mean, it's it's a delight. I love the more that this show investigates LA like culturally. I think it adds so much, but I don't, I think some of that wanes later. So I'm, I'm having fun while we're doing it still. It's true. The only thing living here that I'm always trying to get a beat on is where in the city they're supposed to be. They do that thing oh, that, yeah. that like is true. And I'm sure when things are set in New York and, and, and uh, folks who live in New York feel the same where they'll just be like talking about locations and then they're all of a sudden somewhere else. I'm like, how, what, how did they get that? I don't understand. Like, where are they? <laughs> What's the Uber budget for these people? <laughs> Uber didn't even exist yet. That's even crazier. <laughs> but yeah, so while the party's going on, it's revealed that Angel has crept inside. And as he's doing some Scooby-Dooing about, uh, Boone reveals himself and they start fighting, which uh, leads to another kind of great LA stereotype moment, because rather than people being concerned that there are combatants in their presence, they uh, think it's part of the show. And they think that, they're being treated to stunt people. And I love that that actor is like, ah, they're doing stunts now. That I love that. I love whenever rich people are somewhere dangerous or something dangerous is happening and they're completely certain that they'll be fine. I think that that's such fun. Like, I, I, I think it goes unnoticed a lot of the time. I think a lot of people of a lot of privilege do this. And I always think it's fun when they're completely unaware and, and are made aware at some point um, that they too can die. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this fight occurs, uh, it gets nuts, and then uh, we see Angel making his way dramatically to put a videotape into the uh, AV setup where we previously saw Holland's uh, um, promo video or whatever it was, and Lila and Lindsay lose their shit to try and get to that VCR first, and it's kind of like some, to me, it's a great... uh, end of of teen movie prom sequence where they're rushing to you know get the crown or whatever i i love like so kind of dramatic. like the, so dramatic uh i love it and you know a good reinforcement that these people don't have superpowers that they're just running around like chickens with their heads cut off because they're just people and they vastly overestimated their ability to control a circumstance like this they were trying yeah they were trying to, to put the kibosh on some cancel they were gonna get canceled <laughs> before we were even we even knew what canceling was yeah and i kind of have to wonder you know based on the history of the things that we know wolfram and hart has done up until this point and will do you know as watchers of the show that we know no spoilers are to come there's a part of me that's like okay so angel plays like a a video revealing that they're only going to give some money but not all the money or whatever you know and that's the evil plan in a room full of rich people who are probably ripping people off I think that Lila and Lindsay's reaction to what he's about to do is actually over the top, considering that most of the people in that room probably could have given two shits. 
They don't care. This is like when people follow around Republicans and they're like, look, they're hypocrites. It's like, yeah, their fans like that about them. I don't know how to break it to you. The more you highlight that they're awful people, the cooler they seem to awful people. Yeah. But anyway, Angel makes it there first and he puts in a video cassette, a mini DV, if you will, for you you tech fans of yesteryear. And uh, instead, we get... Wesley's TikTok videos and Cordelia's audition tape. Um. Milk. (laughs) (laughs) So the thickest, grossest, regular milk they could find. It's like cream. (laughs) But I love that she gives. She's 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 a well-rounded performer. You see, so she gives that take. You know, like five or six different intonations. I love the two, the like staring at the camera and moving your own face a little bit thing to see kind of what you look like on camera. Because how are you supposed to know? I've done that before with YouTube stuff. Been like, all right, let me just shoot 10 minutes to see like, what do I look like on camera? I like that we get a little courty moment at the end after the milk where she's like, how am I not working? Like she loved whatever (laughs) she was giving to the camera. Yeah. No. So um, I am a little hazy on some of the episodes leading up to this because it's been a a hot minute. Um, But we talked about the Bob at the beginning. Is this the first episode where the Bob was revealed? Because otherwise, how long ago do we think they had to pre-tape the milk thing knowing this was coming? Because Cordy has her long hair in that video. Oh, but it's a bad wig. Unless it's just her actual hair, in which case, apologies. But it looked... (laughs) I'm pretty good at sussing out wigs. I think that's her real hair. Were they block shooting some of this stuff? Because, like, that, I guess, would make sense. But I think they had to be. The attention to detail for the continuity. I mean, like, chef's kiss. When will Charmed? (laughs) Which I managed to bring up in every episode of Slayer Fest. (laughs) Bless. I love the Charmed reference, so I'm here for the fact that you brought it up, because I, while watching this, the whole last act at the benefit, the benefit to me feels like a third act Charmed thing. Like, I I can just see this happening. They're like, you know, the Hallowells are like, oh, we have to deal with this demon, but we're also attending this soiree. Like, what? Yeah, except it would have been at P3. (laughs) And Alanis Morissette would have been playing inexplicably. So the audience watches in rapt attention slash rich people horror, I guess, at seeing normal people record themselves. Um, And then it's revealed that Angel never had a video of Lila and Lindsay and their nefarious plan. And it was all a trick to embarrass them. And uh, I think that this is really interesting because the fact that all of this heavy brooding and darkness and like angel in the back of Lila's car and like, you know, the intensity uh, is ultimately like in a way, like some kind of big practical joke uh, on Lila and Lindsay. I mean, not, it has ramifications, but it's also to the expense of Anne, which, you know, we alluded to in the beginning of the episode, like he kind of plays her to do this to them. And understandably she's not thrilled. Yeah, she's I like, mean, oh, so where'd where'd all the money go? And he's like, yeah, it was it was tainted anyway. So what? Screw those kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's like really easy for him to take some high road road teaching her a lesson or whatever. And she's like, no, I already understood what was going on. You just lied to me now. So, like, also like, uh, Angel. She's a very vulnerable person, not just for her, but she makes a good point. She's like, you're taking a chance with all of those kids, like. You could have at least, I don't know. It, it's it's another highlight that like Angel's doing things 
And maybe even sometimes accidentally, like his collab with Boone, doing things the right way by like working with somebody or whatever. But like he's still not quite right in the head. Like this is a not normal angel behavior to be like lying to someone like Anne and manipulating her. And if it was like it would, I don't know, they would have played it really differently. Like, like I had to do it or whatever, but they don't. They just play it as like that's what he wanted to do. It's uncomfortable and like... I don't know. It does a good job of leaving you with like a there's resolution, but I'm also unsettled with Angel right now. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's the fact that the hero of the show was not all that heroic and I think frankly kind of unkind and cruel in this episode. Uh, you also brought up a good point that it is revealed that the whole of Boone's existence in this episode was in fact a trick. Boone was part of Angel's plot all along to make Lindsay and Lila look foolish. And while the video was playing, Boone made off with the charity money because sure, that's that also makes Angel look bad. Like, Because here's this collaborator uh, that helped pull off this practical joke, just stole all this money that Anne so desperately needs for her uh, teens in need. Yeah. Also like Angel, you want to steal money from rich people and like give it away. Um, there's a quicker way to do that yeah. <laughs> with superpowers. Um, I don't know. I, the, I, it just, the whole, the, the, the boon of it all to me feels very like a slapdash solution to some plot issues they were having that like, I think could have been smoothed over in some other way. Yeah. Well, it, it kind of almost in a way feels like notes. Like it feels like this episode had uh, been written and Boone either did not play as big of a part or wasn't there at all. And someone was like, mm, probably to your point, we need more fighting in the punchy vampire show. Uh, and that kind of leads to this. I don't know. I I don't dislike the character. I like his introduction, although I do think the point about the Harlequin uh, makeup is really funny. Um <laughs> But I also don't know that we really needed him in this episode at all. No, I don't think we did. And I think like that actor is pretty charismatic. So if we were going to use him, let's find something for him to do. Yeah, I was going to say, um, it, it kind of, there's a little bit of like, look over here, here's a flashy thing. And I didn't remember until I rewatched this that I think this is one of the earlier episodes where one of the higher ups at Wolfman Hart makes absolutely clear what their intentions with Angel are for the rest of the series. Like mm. they, they know that he has some part in the apocalypse and that's why they want to keep him close. And any other, like any interaction he has with Lindsay or Lila or whatever, it's all in service of this like much bigger scope. I kind of had a bit of like, Oh, Oh yeah. Okay. Now, now I see how this like interaction connects with, everything that happens in seasons four and five. Yeah, I think the world building is really smart here. And I guess in a way, what you're saying does justify Boone because Boone gives us the moment where Lindsay is like, I don't care what the senior partners want. If Boone kills Angel, great. And then th that leads to the scene immediately following the charity event, which you're alluding to where Lindsay and Lila are brought in front of Nathan uh, and reprimanded not only for losing the money, but for going against what the law firm wants, uh, because they're like, look, you are expendable, Angel's not, which I think is a really interesting tack to take with our primary villains of the show, like that the writers and the creators are telegraphing to us that even the villains know that Lindsay and Lila don't matter in the long run, Angel does. And it's, it's just an interesting way to... Uh, 
to approach the material and creates a very different kind of set of stakes than we would get with a big bad uh, in Buffy. Cause you know, like glory, for example, her plot is glory centric, whereas Wolfram and Hart's plot is angel centric. And that like kind of shifts the, the perspective and, and affects everything from this point on. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting too, because I don't know the, I don't know the mechanics of this. So like if he is, a part of the apocalypse and that's predestined or like a prophecy or something. Um, does that mean he definitely won't die until then? Like we're certain, or does that mean if he does die, there will be no apocalypse in which case let's kill angel. Um, or does it mean that like he'll be prominent? Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know what any of, I don't understand. And I don't, I don't love it because of that ambiguity as much as I love, Buffy being a slayer because slayers are destined to die but like slayers are born to die that's they're supposed to relentlessly pursue the goal of if I can't win I'll die trying and so like every day Buffy survives is exciting and we're on our back foot all the time and stuff and like I think it works a little better with this I'm like so they're not going to kill Angel so like I understand the dynamic and it is more interesting to play with and it does mean that everyone around Angel is more vulnerable because they're more motivated to kill those people to manipulate angel than they are to just focus their attacks on angel. Who's kind of a tank. Um, but I, I, we just, I don't think we ever really get into it. It's just sort of vague that angels destined for this thing like this or, or the, and, and the Shanshu of it all. Like it, 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 I, I, it's not like tied together for me in a clean way. And I think we never really did that at the beginning. So we never really get to it. Um, yeah. but I do like that this new boss does change the dynamics. It's not just someone being Harlan, you know? Yeah. It's it's interesting, too, when you think about the fact that his, Nathan's whole thing when he confronts Lindsay and Lila is all about Angel will play a key role in the apocalypse. And Wolfram and Hart, is, there is ambiguity. Uh, and they don't know what role he's going to play. He's either going to be fighting on the side of good or evil, but they know he's important, so they want to keep him alive, blah, 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 blah. But where it gets complicated, and I think that you really speak to this, is also the fact that it comes down to a question of whose apocalypse. Like we have been living in this universe. If you're like a watcher of both shows for a while now, and this isn't even our second apocalypse in the greater Buffy universe. So it's sort of like, how is this like the apocalypse versus, you know, when apocalypses one through three happened in Buffy already. Apocalypse versus the apocalypse. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's just never defined. And so you're right. I think that's really interesting and an important point to call out because does Wolfram and Hart know something uh, that we don't? Or in the grand scheme of big bads, is it just their personal thing? It's like, this is my birthday party and that's Gloria's birthday party. You know, like one of those things. Yeah, it's everybody's trying to like... Um, as if everybody's building their own particle accelerator, trying to do cold fusion or whatever. And uh, I, yeah, they're really focused on this one, which also makes me wonder why is this apocalypse the one that Wolfram Hart's like, oh, we're going ham on this one. This is the right solution. Versus like, we've seen some other probably easier to execute apocalypses available to them. Like they should have just found a Kafla. You know what I mean? That would have been like, bang, bam, get that shit done. So I don't know. And I wish that we got like the Hellmouth was a great reason to be in Sunnydale. And the Slayer thing was a great reason to not know if she was going to like to give us stakes and not know like, you know, which which one of these uh, attempted apocalypses might, you know, it's, it's all up to chance. When we start introducing some of that other stuff, even the oracles, and I know that they had to get rid of them at some point because it was a little too plot difficult to walk around. Um, 
I just wish we got something. I feel like, you know, not to, no, you know, trigger warning everybody for the worst fucking children's author ever, but at least in Harry Potter, their time travel nonsense, she jumped through a lot of hoops to make sure that she was plugging as many of the holes as she could think of. Um, I wish we got a little of that, but also on the other side of it, all the ambiguity does lend itself to Angel's character. Um, and, you know, him being a giant gray question mark in a million different ways uh, is kind of a cool thing to watch the other characters orbit around. So from that perspective, I think it's interesting. It's just not clean, you know? Yeah, I suppose also the this particular reveal in this episode, in a way, ties together something we've all been talking about since the beginning of the episode. And it's sort of Angel's... Uh, not clean behavior over the course of the episode. Like the fact that they reveal that he will play a major part in the apocalypse, but it's unclear whether it's going to be good or evil at the end of this, after we have watched an episode of Angel doing something that he considers good while also doing nasty, dark things to do it. This episode, I guess, in a way, illustrates sort of Wolfram and Hart's vested interest. Like at any given time, we could get the villain or the hero and we're kind of waiting to see. Now, that might just be me retroactively putting that on mm. this and applauding the writers in a, in a way that maybe they weren't thinking about at the time, especially because they still have to world build out three more seasons from this point. But I, I'm just having this re- revelation now. I'm like, oh, okay, this thing that's been bugging me this whole episode, the Lila backseat situation, how he treats Merle, how he handles Anne, which bugged me this whole episode because it just feels icky it's sort of like but then to have nathan stand in front of Lindsay and lila and say this person could be the means to the end of the world yeah i think that is a really interesting illustration because we just watched him be a hero and shitty all at once mm-hmm. yeah i was gonna say to and sort of to ryan's earlier point where the stakes in buffy are, are less ambiguous it's I think it's because fundamentally Buffy the series and Angel the series are asking different questions about their protagonists. In Buffy, it's will she live? Will she live or die? And with that, save the world. Um, But Angel, the question that always is sort of chasing us is, is he going to stay good or turn evil? And Mm. when... Um, you know, the boss at Wolfram and Hart is like, well, we don't actually know that we can't answer the good or evil question. Uh, so we're just going to keep teasing you along on that. But either way, you know, it brings about the apocalypse, which is our end goal. Um, so I think it's just, you know, that with, with, you know, Buffy, it's never a question of, is she going to be evil? Um, but Angel, honestly, day to day, it might be small evil, like him being an asshole to Anne, or it might be big evil and jealous is back. Yeah, I think too. Uh, the angel does a good, a gooder, gooder does a better job of being like a little antisocial behavior isn't cool. Like it actually, you don't need a little of it to be healthy. You don't need any of it. Like when you're rude or nasty to your friends or you're shortchange people, it's it's it you you start building momentum in a certain direction. Um, and yeah, I guess the like will he won't he is a really cool question. I guess I just never really thought of it from that perspective because to me, it always seems like such a foregone conclusion that like Cordelia will encourage him and he'll do the right thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> but maybe that's with hindsight because I watched this as a child and already have all the answers. Yeah. Uh, so once Lindsay and Lila get their buns handed to them, uh, we go back to the Hyperion where we see Angel 
getting rid of his files on Anne, wrapping it up another case for another week, when lo and behold, who pops in but Boone? Uh, Boone brings the charity donations, which he stole from the party, and is like, look, I know that we were just working together, but the basis for our uh, cover story is real, and I really want to fight you because that would make me real horny and happy or whatever Mm -hmm. is going on here. And Angel's like, girl, if we do this, you may lose your money. And Boone's like, whatevs. And then uh, they fight. Uh, And I'm just kind of obsessed now after the point of the sexual tension with this scene. (laughs) <laughs> Boone is like, I wish I knew how to quit you. <laughs> One more wrestle for all time's sake. <laughs> oh, the good old wrestling. <laughs> oh my. I love Boone's little like metal coil hands. <laughs> as I was watching it, as there's something about him, go with me on this, that reminded me of um oh gosh, is it Josh Brolin who plays cable in the X-Men movies? Yeah. Yeah. There's something about Boone. Character, Boone's character that reminded me of Josh Brolin and then I was like wait but this guy actually has cables for hands <laughs> okay all oh, this is just how my geeky brain works where all references are one giant reference see I was like it's got to be a fetish thing because that's how my brain works <laughs> <laughs> well I mean it's like instant bondage hands right <laughs> yeah what a power <laughs> truly <laughs> Um, and, uh, you know, I love these kind of one-off characters though, where, because Angel has lived for centuries, we get to meet someone and then it's like, you were so important to my past and then we'll never see him again. Uh, as someone who used to watch the Highlander television series every day after school, uh, they used to love to do that where he's like, he's immortal and he knows a lot of people. I'm like, why are we never seeing any of these people? I feel, I feel for the, the, the working monsters of the week. I really do. The Merles and the Boons who are established and then thrown to the wayside. We get too many of them. Angel does really flourish with Don Draper energy. And this whole Boone thing was very like, I don't think of you at all. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Boone. Uh, I like how in this episode, when this episode began, we were all kind of like, whatever for Boone. And now it's kind of like justice for Boone at the end. Like we, we feel a little like Boone got a raw deal. Yeah. Justice for Boone. (laughs) We ride it Don. Yeah, I don't know about you, but um, I, like the last time I thought about someone, like a, ch- a chance encounter with someone for 300 years, like it, it kind of meant something. I think. <laughs> maybe a little yeah, denial. I don't stay up at night thinking about things that don't mean anything, except when are, I do. Are we to assume <laughs> that, that Boone is now dead? Yeah. Oh, is, oh. That, is that the question? No, I never even considered that. Oh my God, Dana. Yeah, I think I mean, that that's why there's blood on that money, you know? I just thought it was like kink play. (laughs) He has to, Boone has to know which one of them is better. Yeah. And I think like also making Boone a demon was a great way for us to be like, he didn't kill a person, but like Hmm. he kind of did. Like we saw this guy be kind of morally ambiguous. And like Merle's a perfect example of like Clem. There are demons that are not like evil, evil. Um, And, you know, I don't know. I, I, it's a, I guess it's another thing where if you think about it a little bit, it makes Angel seem dark. But also, we don't know the specifics of the fight. Like, maybe it was, like, kill or be killed at a certain point. I don't know. Interesting, though. Interesting that it happens off screen <laughs> to maintain a certain tone for the character, both the characters, you know? Yeah. I, although the idea that he killed him is now sort of, like, not blowing my mind. But I'm like, why did I not even consider that? I just assumed they had, like, some good punches. And they were like, wow, was it good for you? And then... 
Boone's like, here's the money. Like, you know, like I don't know. Maybe I want maybe I wanted Angel to be better, as if the last 45 minutes of the episode prior didn't like show that he maybe isn't better. <laughs> uh, so anyway, we know that Boone does not win the fight because a battered, bruised angel uh, shows up at Anne's office with the bag full of money and jewelry and is like, here, uh, and tells her to hide it from Wolfram and Hart, but she now gets 100% of the proceeds. And uh, in sort of a stinger that ties us back to their first conversation, uh, their first meaningful conversation, uh, he, she's like, "There, what is this on the money? And he's like, it's blood. And she goes, it'll wash off, proving that Anne uh, is willing to do what she needs to do to help her peeps as well. Thus endeth the episode. What do we think about this final scene? Well, I mean, she knows how to launder money. Yeah. In two oh, ways. Yeah. I kind of like the the play on on the whole money laundering thing because she says, I know how to like basically like hide this, right? So she's gonna launder the money. And she knows how to actually launder the money. They're gonna open a fundraising car wash with like a lot of business. <laughs> and this is how we get the Angel Breaking Bad universe. I also like that I mean at a certain point I think this is kind of non-verbal but I think the actress did a really good I really like this actress did a great job with it which was like I mean what's done is done like I can wash the money like I you know I wouldn't have done it that way I don't want to work with you again like it is what it is but like I got teens who need me to go to Costco so fuck off I will wash this whatever and I think that's also like maybe a counterbalance to what we're seeing with the um agency and the old gang um of like when you're in the real world you know it is going to be weirdly morally gray but um you know there's there's being a pragmatist and then there's doing what angel is doing which is like self-destructive stuff yeah i really like this character and i think that um it was brought up earlier about how in a way it's a bummer we didn't get more of her. I know she comes back in season five, but that's years from now Mm -hmm. because she illustrates like, I wish we had a character like this. I think they wanted to do something like this with Kate in the first season that just didn't happen for multiple reasons. But Anne operates in a space where exactly what you're saying, she represents the real world and that moral ambiguity. And it's sort of like, she represents people who are downtrodden and in need. And it's sort of like, okay, well you're fighting werewolves and farting demons and things like, well, the real monster in my life is just hunger and, and a cruel world. And so I need what I can get, what I can get to get by. And I think that having that parallel, maybe it was just too heavy for this era of television, but I think that's such an interesting character, especially at this point in the show. And I wish we had gotten more of it. And so self-aware to be like, you actually know what people need. We actually know what people need. We actually have the solutions. We actually know how to solve 90% of the problems in the world. It's just money. It's just taking money from rich people and helping poor people. That's really all it is. And any way we can get to that, we'll start the conversation over when everyone has a place to sleep. Like, I will look at my ethics and we'll find a better way when everyone has a place to sleep. And until then, I'm going to rob the rich, even if it's metaphorically with their permission or whatever, like, you know, in a hyper-realistic play or whatever bullshit way I have to do it, fine. But, like, the solution actually isn't, you know, contemplating right and wrong from the shadows and making direct action against a villain. It's, like, give people money. Like, most of these people's problems are not vampires and they're not people out in the night. And... I think it's a good reminder for a show like this, especially that the show is supposed to be a metaphor. The show is not like 
a lesson for how you should act in real life. Like it's a metaphor for like ethics and like, you know, choices and right and wrong and what it all means. But like ultimately in the real world, people just need money. Just give people more money. You know, <laughs> it, I, I, I don't know how to make it any more simple than that. And it's interesting because the people complicating that in this episode are rich people and they are lawyers and they're people for whom this is a really simple problem to solve, but they just don't want to, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's interesting as, as you were saying that too, it's like, I feel like that's illustrated by so many of the characters in this that are not part of the, either the, the angel investigations or Wolfram and Hart. Cause Merle to a, to a certain extent is that too. He's not involved other than, you know, taking the gig from angel. He, his day to day is not uh, worried about the apocalypse or solving a crime. He just needs to live. Like he wants to yeah. get by. And I am always interested when we see kind of for the lack of a better term, the, the like blue collar demons of the Buffy verse, because that, that's kind of the thing across the board where we see them sort of like, they're the people in between they They really represent us, I guess, you know, like we in a, in a day-to-day basis would not be the ones riding into battle or fighting the apocalypse. We'd just be like, Oh shit, that's going on. Anyway. Uh, I need, you know, dinner. <laughs> I mean, listen, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. I know I took it there already again. Um, but like, truly there isn't like we're all bad guys to the people who are making our products but what are we supposed to do you can't divorce yourself from needing food from the grocery store i like my full-time job can't be growing food because first off i'm not good at it and i'm disabled but also like that can't be what everyone's job is in the world right now um and so like are we all kind of bad people in some respect yes but as we learn later in buffy and as the lore of the slayer verse expands buffy's part demon too so like this doesn't it's the way that he looks and the way that he has to live to survive doesn't mean he's a bad person or deserving of being like killed. And so we don't really know what happened with Boone, but it is like I I think you're right. Like the Merle of it all does kind of underline how morally gray and how like perfect like re- truly dubious Angel's takes on things are right now. Yeah. All right. Well, I feel like we've hit that point in the episode. Uh, I know that we have some grading and and favorites. Uh, Ryan, do you want to take us into that? Sure thing. Um, Nick, what was your favorite scene? Okay. Um, My favorite scene, it's got to be the introduction to Boone. Uh, It's just he's so alluring with his blue Harlequin face. (laughs) (laughs) Dana, what was your favorite scene? You know, I really didn't love this episode, um, so I don't have a favorite scene. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Michael, what's your favorite scene? Oh, gosh. Um, I'm going to have to say that my favorite scene, it, it's got to be the angel and Lila in the car. Not because it like thrills me, but because I actually think there's like some really interesting commentary uh, and uh, on power dynamics, and, and it's scary from her perspective, even though she is the villain, it also shows him in a darker way that leads us to question him. Um, I, I think that it's just a really interesting sequence. And like, it, it stuck with me. Like, it bothered me, but I'm still thinking about it. So I don't know if favorite's the right word, but it is, for me, the lasting scene because it's it's like some some heavy footwork from the actors and the writing uh, because it's saying a lot with, with uh, one location. So Truly. I think my favorite scene um, was Cordelia's Valerie Cherish moment while she was practicing drinking milk. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. So our favorite outfits. 
Uh, Dana, what was your favorite outfit? Okay, so I'm going to go for Lila's one-shoulder dress yes. at the, the, mm-hmm. the ball. I think it's a classic look. And it was kind of like this like inky, purpley, bluish. It, it, was, it was a really nice dress. Agreed. Uh, Nick, what was your favorite? Uh, same. Um, I will say the scene where she's getting dressed down by the boss with Lindsay that immediately follows that, you see that there's a matching tuxedo jacket to go with it. So styles um demerits for her very 1998 makeup um which is too much blue eyeshadow but everything else is working michael what was your favorite outfit uh my favorite outfit this is so specific but at the uh ball benefit whatever it's that cheese cowboy outfit that the actor is wearing because Ah! I, (laughs) i know so many actors who have had to take gigs like that and i just like instantly felt the sympathy because like he's doing his best but like and it's kind of cute but like also the thing where it's just like He's he's literally dressing up and dancing for rich people, you know, and you know, metaphorically speaking. And I I just feel for him, but it's also kind of like it, it's the comedy of the scene. It's also the commentary of the scene. I I appreciate it, and I I don't know. I just like a silly cowboy outfit. <laughs> Listen, a cowboy outfit on someone who isn't a cowboy in L.A. It's giving Barbie, and so that was part of my fantasy. But also, I I think my favorite outfit is probably the outfits in a box. Uh, that were Cordelia's. <laughs> that is so rude. <laughs> because in the tantalizing imagination of my mind, they can all be perfect and and perfectly picked out. Some of them thrifted, some of them, you know, vintage pieces. <laughs> some of them brand new from Charlotte Roos because it was 2001. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, so, Michael, what, what would you grade this episode? Oh, gosh. Um... I don't know. I think that this is like a B minus for me. Uh, maybe I don't know. It's it's a it's a B minus bumping on a C. I don't think it's bad, but I think there are some things in it that uh, didn't fully gel with me upon rewatch. I, I think that there, as I mentioned earlier, there are things that I feel like were noted. Uh, that I can just feel the rewrites. But that being said, the moral ambiguity of it, the kind of setting up Angel in this place of like, he's our hero, but is he even when he's not Angelus? I'm fascinated by that. Also, the, in this conversation, thanks to all revelation, that the conversation we get with Lila and Lindsay uh, is sort of a punctuation on everything that pre uh, precludes it in the episode. It's like kind of Oh, wow. So uh, I'm going to say it's it's kind of like a firmly in the middle episode, B minus for me. But the things that it begins to set up and the things that it starts to posit about Angel, I think, are really fascinating. Nick, what would you give this? Yeah, I was going to say a B, B minus, same. I wasn't wowed by everything here. Um, it moved. It definitely felt like, you know, this is an episode that is moving the plot along. But where it does really stick out for me is how I can see how the, you know, particularly again, conversations, the Wolferman Hart conversations that are had in this episode lead to some of the more dramatic and surprise takes in, in later seasons. So. Mm. Dana, what's your grade? I want to give it a C plus. It had some redeeming qualities that move the plot forward, but overall, like it just wasn't a particularly thrilling episode for me. Yeah, I similarly will be landing around a C plus. I think the things that got us to C plus, to me, when I grade, you're getting a percentage for how much you did correctly. Then the stuff that's there is correct. There's a lot and they're big pieces, but the rest of it is just a soup of of 
of solutions to problems, regurgitations of like a lesser version of something else I've seen, or just resting on how great these characters and actors are without actually having much to say. Um, but those are, again, those aren't knocks. Those are just neutral to me, but I'm not grading on neutral. I'm grading on what was good. So I'm giving this a C plus, um, but you know, it doesn't mean it's horrible. It means it was above average, you know? Yeah. Well, I think with that, we could probably close the book on Angel Season 2, Episode 12, Blood Money. Uh, so as we're wrapping up, let's uh, go go through and tell everybody where we can be found and, and where people can find you. Dana, where, where should listeners look for you? I'm pretty much on all social platforms at Dana Pickley, 2Cs1L. Excellent. Uh, Nick? Um, I'm mostly on Instagram at Coco DeVoe, C-O-C-O-D-E-V-A-U-X, but more across the internet at Geeks Out and at FlameCon. Amazing. Ryan. You can find me, um, you know, not to preempt your plug, but wearing my Dracula t-shirt on the internet. <laughs> um, <laughs> You can find me at youtube.com slash at Raiho. That's R-Y-H-O. I am making longer reported pieces about the mix of pop culture and politics. And it is not as exhausting as it sounds. We have a lot of fun. My last video is about Barbie being child-free and how that is an eternal sleigh, no matter what else you think about Barbie. Well, I mean, I don't even have to do a Dragula plug because you did it for me. Um, <laughs> well, so if you're not watching uh, the Boulay Brothers Dragula on Shutter, of course, you can find me at Michael Verratti on Twitter and Instagram, as well as every other week I co-host Midnight Mass with my dear ghoul friend, Peaches Christ, where we talk about cult cinema. And yes, that's that's that on that. I feel like we have adequately and phenomenally slayed this episode. Yes, I will be using my cable hands <laughs> until it's time to come back to Slayer Fest. Well, thank you all. This was amazing. Really appreciate it. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Hey there. It's Editor Ashley here, popping in to say that if you enjoyed this and you want to follow Slayer Fest 98 online, you can find us at SlayerFestX98 on all social media platforms. And if you're interested in getting more bonus content, like extra video episodes and audio episodes talking about things like Harley Quinn, Batman the Animated Series, Red, White, and Royal Blue, and Marvel, you should check out our Patreon, where you can get all of that and more for as little as $5 a month. Any and all support is appreciated. Okay, bye! 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 bye.